the College Planning Edge. Multiply your odds of getting into your dream college and get your hands on thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships. Brought to you by Lockwood College Prep, helping college-bound families get the edge in college admissions, financial aid, scholarships, and test prep. Hi, so it's Andy Lockwood here, and I just wanted to do a quick uh, little note on what happens if you don't get in to your top choice school. I'm recording this at the beginning of December, December 1st, 5.46 p.m. I just realized that I have my uh, jazz going on in the background, so hopefully that's not interfering. If so, I apologize on behalf of Mr. Arthur Tatum. Um, so... One thing I wanted to say, and I was just actually writing about this in my newsletter to, to my clients, is that every year there are uh, what I think are pretty instructive and valuable types of essays or news articles that go around about the um, about really successful people who did not get into their first choice college, such as Warren Buffett and um, I think maybe Tom Brokaw is on that list. There's a lot of people. And those articles are offered as a sort of consolation, you know, to people who got dinged from the first choice college. I think those are great, and I, I value the the point of view, which is that it doesn't really matter so much where you go to college; it's more about your efforts. And in fact, um, this would be a good opportunity to recommend a book by the author, New York Times author uh, Frank. Bruni, I think. I don't know if it's Brunei or Bruni. I believe it's the latter. Called Where You Go Is Not Who You Will Be, or worse to that effect. Really prepared tonight. <laughs> um, and you know, the, the thesis of that book is very similar, which is that um, you know, it's, it's great initially maybe to earn your way into a Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or whatever your dream college is. But from then on, it's not really such a big deal as you go through life. Now, granted, um, if you get into, let's say, a Wharton or a Michigan Ross School of Business or equivalent, I definitely think you get a leg up in terms of alumni network and job placement and all that. However, um, that is not a thing of the past, but I think that's far less important in today's economy compared to the way things used to be maybe uh, 20 to 30 years ago. Uh, I was just talking with a bunch of my friends because we had a 35th high school reunion um, this past Thanksgiving that I didn't even know about. I've been to all the other ones, so um, hopefully there was no move movement to exclude me <laughs> this year. But uh, none of my friends went anyway, so um, we're getting together on our own. And, you know, we just, some of us were talking on and off about, you know, where we're at in various stages of life. And it it was, again, very obvious to me that, you know, the people that we knew who got into elite colleges were not necessarily the ones who were the most successful in life. And by the way, vice versa, and, and maybe you can think of people like this too, how many do you know who went to a super elite school and became losers. And I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative, judgy way. I mean that just objectively speaking, how many people are not happy with their lives despite having gone to one of those elite schools? 
there's but but many of them still talk about those schools. It's almost like they're flicking their college beanies still in their 50s and 60s. That's a phrase that Pearl uses a lot. Because going to one of those elite schools is certainly no guarantee of financial or other success. So getting back to my thoughts on the economy, the type of economy we're in, I, th- I think um, as things continue to shift, and I am an amateur economist, uh, by the way, but as things continue to change and shift, not just because of, of COVID, but just because of forces that were in play uh, long before COVID, particularly with the outsourcing of you know, so many different types of jobs, not only to other countries where you can hire people for much lower wages, even to do things like accounting and law and other professional types of jobs and tasks, but also artificial intelligence. My feeling is that we are in much more of a production economy than ever. And what I mean by that is it's, it's more about what value can you bring, even if you're an employee. Employees need to start thinking entrepreneurially, meaning, well, well I guess the definition of an entrepreneur is uh, something like someone who creates some sort of value out of resources that are already there. I know it comes from a French word, or maybe it is a French word, and I believe that's a very loose transition, uh, translation. I took five years of French in high school, and I don't think we once used the word entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. There we go. That's helpful. That's why you tune into these podcasts. So um, the way it used to be, I think, for a lot of people was you could you know, get a job, kind of show your face, show up every day at work, do what you were told, and you would advance through the ranks. And a lot of people, maybe um, you know, people our age, maybe our parents, it was more likely to be this, this way than probably for people in their 50s right now. But um, you could just sort of advance and then uh, get a pension and retire. And since then... Um, that's changed a lot. It's very unusual for people to have one job their entire working career. Most people change careers uh, at least two or three times, if not more. And the whole thing about like pensions and all that is still there. If you go into work for a you know city or municipality, some sort of government job or a union, perhaps. But for a lot of other people, it doesn't exist anymore. Which means that there's more to figure out on your own instead of relying on big corporations which can't afford to do that anymore. Um, so in terms of skills that I, I think we should be teaching our children, it's, it's how to create value, how to drive that, you know, whether that's revenue or some other type of value, but you need to be able to develop skills not just in college. Frankly, most, most of the skills that will help you in the workforce will not come from college. Um, and be a lifetime learner. So the learning, uh, you know, ostensibly happens in college, but it shouldn't stop there. It should continue thereafter. So what I'm getting at is even if you don't get it right, so to speak, in your mind, which is debatable, meaning you don't get into the college that you hoped would, you know, uh, help you achieve a huge, success, huge amounts of success, I really wouldn't fret because it's not about that. I think once you get out of college and you get your first job, um, progressively each year becomes less and less important where you went to college. And I can tell you this not just professionally, but also personally, because uh, you know, my, my wife, Pearl, my business partner, she went to Cornell. And she's very fond of telling a story about how she, uh, after, in between graduating undergrad at, at Cornell, 
in the two years before she went to law school, which is where we met, she uh, went around applying for jobs, I think basically entry-level secretarial-type positions. And the conversations were usually along the lines of, oh, I see that you went to Cornell. Yes. Good school. Yeah. Uh, how many words per minute do you type? <laughs> and, you know, I went to Wesleyan um, University in, in Connecticut, and that is not an Ivy school, but still considered to be, you know, a fairly competitive school. And occasionally some people will ask me that, um, you know, a guy in the golf course asked me that um, about a month ago or two months ago. And that may be the last guy who asked me. Uh, and occasionally I'll, you know, I'll say, yeah, Wesleyan, and they'll say, oh, good school. But, you know, so what? So uh, that doesn't really factor much in, in my life. Granted, my situation might be different than yours or your kids because I'm self-employed. However, I think it's safe to say that it really doesn't matter much other than as a initial credential. So it can be important from that perspective, but let's say you don't go to an elite school and you go to you know a state school in any state, not just an elite state school like Virginia or Michigan or, or uh, uh, North Carolina, but just any state school. Does that mean that you're going to make less money? Absolutely not. Um, there were studies that were done by economists, um, several studies, um, the seminal study was done by uh, two economists named Kruger and Dale, and then it was updated. And the first study tracked the uh, two groups of kids, one group who got into an Ivy League school and the other one who got in but didn't go. And after 10 years, their earnings were identical or virtually identical. And then the follow-up study to that, which I thought was pretty clever, was two groups of kids who had similar um, academic credentials in high school, and one set got into the Ivy and the other one didn't. And then they looked at the same thing 10 years later. What were their earnings like? And again, uh, nearly or, if, or actually identical. No, no statistical deviation. So what conclusion do you draw from that? Well, I think it's you know, what I've been talking about so far, which is that doesn't really matter where you go. Um, perhaps the kids who had the high academic credentials who were gunning for the Ivy or other elite schools, perhaps that's an indication of how they saw themselves as, as wanting to compete with you know, the best in their minds. And that's more important than actually going. It's more about how you see yourself and the efforts you put in. Again, amateur here, but a lot of common sense uh, stuff to me. Uh, at least, at least, uh, at least those those arguments make sense to me. So, I'll wrap up here because I wanted to keep this short. Um, I hope all of our kids get into the top schools they were hoping to get into, but um, if they don't, it's far from the end of the world. It's it's really just the beginning. Um, oh, I, I should make one more point. Sometimes the, the, the colleges that kids were lusting after to get into, they actually do gain admission to, and they go there, and they hate it. It turns out to be the wrong choice. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that. We hear that all the time. I've been in the college advising field for more than 20 years, and every year there are unhappy kids thinking about transferring, not just because they hate their roommate or they miss mommy in the laundry amenities and things like that. Uh, sometimes the school is a really bad fit for them. So that is now the official wrap-up of this edition of the College Planning Edge. I'm Andy Lockwood. More information about our firm, Lockwood College Prep, is at our website, lockwoodcollegeprep.com. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, give us one of those cool five-star ratings. 
I'd appreciate that. I'm not sure exactly how that would help me, but um, it would just be a nice thing to do. And don't keep us a secret. If uh, you know, please share this with in any of the other episodes with um, any other parents or concerned people, persons of interest that you think would benefit from this. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the College Planning Edge podcast. For more information about our Inner Circle Group Coaching Membership, which is a great way to dip your toes in the water of the whole college planning morass, um, and get access to our double secret software, College Guru software that helps you create a strategic list of colleges and identify fat, juicy, merit aid, and need-based aid opportunities as well as some other benefits, check out the Lockwood Inner Circle at lockwoodinnercircle.com and use the coupon code PODCAST for 50% off the first month's membership. Thanks for listening.